This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Hypnos by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs 23 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Hypnos by H.P. Lovecraft Apropos of sleep, that sinister adventure of all our nights, we may say that men go to bed daily with an audacity that would be incomprehensible if we did not know that it is the result of ignorance of the danger. Baudelaire May the merciful gods, if indeed there be such, guard those hours when no power of the will or drug that the cunning of man devises can keep me from the chasm of sleep. Death is merciful, for there is no return therefrom. But with him who has come back out of the nethermost chambers of night, haggard and knowing, peace rests nevermore. Fool that I was to plunge with such unsanctioned frenzy into mysteries no man was meant to penetrate. Fool or God that he was, my only friend who led me and went before me, and who in the end passed into terrors which may yet be mine. We met, I recall, in a railway station, where he was the centre of a crowd of the vulgarly curious. He was unconscious, having fallen into a kind of convulsion, which imparted to his slight black-clad body a strange rigidity. I think he was then approaching forty years of age, for there were deep lines in the face, wan and hollow-cheeked, but oval and actually beautiful, and touches of grey in the thick waving hair and the small full beard, which had once been of the deepest raven black. His brow was as white as the marble of Pentelicus, and of a height and a breadth almost godlike. I said to myself, with all the ardour of a sculptor, that this man was a fawn statue out of antique Hellas, dug from a temple's ruins, and brought somehow to life in our stifling age, only to feel the chill and pressure of devastating years. And when he opened his immense, sunken, and widely luminous black eyes, I knew he would be thenceforth my only friend. The only friend of one who had never possessed a friend before. For I saw that such eyes must have looked fully upon the grandeur and the terror of realms beyond normal consciousness and reality. Realms which I had cherished in fancy, but vainly sought. So, as I drove the crowd away, I told him he must come home with me, and be my teacher and leader in unfathomed mysteries. And he assented, without speaking a word. Afterwards I found that his voice was music, the music of deep viols and of crystalline spheres. We talked often in the night, and in the day, when I chiselled busts of him, and carved miniature heads in ivory to immortalise his different expressions. Of our studies it is impossible to speak, since they held so slight a connection with 
anything of the world as living men conceive it. They were of that vaster and more appalling universe of dim entity and consciousness, which lies deeper than matter, time and space, and whose existence we suspect only in certain forms of sleep. Those rare dreams beyond dreams, which come never to common men, but once or twice in the lifetime of imaginative men. The cosmos of our waking knowledge, born from such a universe as is a bubble born from the pipe of a jester, touches it only as such a bubble may touch its sardonic source when sucked back by the jester's whim. Men of learning suspect it little, and ignore it mostly. Wise men have interpreted dreams, and the gods have laughed. One man with oriental eyes has said that all time and space are relative, and men have laughed. But even that man with oriental eyes has done no more, has done no more than suspect. And my friend had tried, and partly succeeded. We then both tried together, and with exotic drugs, courted terrible and forbidden dreams in the tower studio chamber of the old manor house in Hoary Kent. Among the agonies of these after days is that chief of torments, inarticulateness. What I learned and saw in those hours of impious exploration can never be told, for want of symbols or suggestions in any language. I say this because from the first to the last, our discoveries partook only of the nature of sensations. Sensations correlated with no impression which the nervous system of normal humanity is capable of receiving. They were sensations, yet within them lay unbelievable elements of time and space, things at which bottom possess no distinct and definite existence. Human utterance can best convey the general character of our experiences by calling them plungings or soarings. For in every period of revelation, some part of our minds broke boldly away from all that is real and present, rushing aerially along shocking, unlighted and fear-haunted abysses and occasionally tearing through certain well-marked and typical obstacles describable only as viscous, uncouth clouds or vapours. In these black and bodiless flights, we were sometimes alone and sometimes together. When we were together, my friend was always far ahead. I could comprehend his presence, despite the absence of form, by a species of pictorial memory, whereby his face appeared to me, golden from a strange light, and frightful with its weird beauty, its anomalous youthful cheeks, its burning eyes, its Olympian brow, and its shadowing hair and growth of beard. Of the progress of time we kept no record, for time had become to us the merest illusion. I know only that there must have been something very singular involved, 
since we came at length to marvel why we did not grow old. Our discourse was unholy, and always hideously ambitious. No god or demon could have aspired to discoveries and conquests like those which we planned in whispers. I shiver as I speak of them, and dare not be explicit, though I will say that my friend once wrote on paper a wish which he dared not utter with his tongue, and which made me burn the paper and look affrightedly out of the window at the spangled night sky. I will hint, only hint, that he had designs which involved the rulership of the visible universe and more. Designs whereby the earth and the stars would move at his command, and the destinies of all living things be his. I affirm, I swear, that I had no share in these extreme aspirations. Anything my friend may have said or written to the contrary must be erroneous, for I am no man of strength to risk the unmentionable warfare in unmentionable spheres by which alone one might achieve success. There was a night when winds from unknown spaces whirled us irresistibly into limitless vacua beyond all thought and entity. Perceptions of the most maddeningly untransmissible sort thronged upon us. Perceptions of infinity, which at the time convulsed us with joy, yet which are now partly lost to my memory and partly incapable of presentation to others. Viscous obstacles were clawed through in rapid succession, and at length I felt that we had been born to realms of higher remoteness than any we had previously known. My friend was vastly in advance as we plunged into this awesome ocean of virgin ether, and I could see the sinister exultation on his floating, luminous, too youthful memory face. Suddenly that face became dim and quickly disappeared, and in a brief space I found myself projected against an obstacle which I could not penetrate. It was like the others, yet incalculably denser, a sticky, clammy mass, if such terms can be applied to analogous qualities in a non-material sphere. I had, I felt, been halted by a barrier which my friend and leader had successfully passed. Struggling anew, I came to the end of the drug dream, and opened my physical eyes to the tower studio, in whose opposite corner reclined the pallid and still unconscious form of my fellow dreamer, weirdly haggard and wildly beautiful, as the moon shed gold-green light upon his marble features. Then, after a short interval, the form in the corner stirred, and may pitying heaven keep from my sight and sound another thing like that which took place before me. I cannot tell you how he shrieked, 
or of what vistas of unvisitable hells gleamed for a second in black eyes crazed with fright. I can only say that I fainted, and did not stir till he himself recovered, and shook me in his frenzy for someone to keep away the horror and desolation. That was the end of our voluntary searchings in the caverns of dream. Awed, shaken, and portentous, my friend who had been beyond the barrier warned me that we must never venture within those realms again. What he had seen, he dared not tell me, but he said from his wisdom that we must sleep as little as possible, even if drugs were necessary to keep us awake. That he was right, I soon learned from the unutterable fear which engulfed me whenever consciousness lapsed. After each short and inevitable sleep, I seemed older, whilst my friend aged with a rapidity almost shocking. It is hideous to see wrinkles form and hair whiten almost before one's eyes. Our mode of life was now totally altered. Theretofore, a recluse so far as I know, his true name and origin never having passed his lips, my friend now became frantic in his fear of solitude. At night he would not be alone, nor would the company of a few persons calm him. His sole relief was obtained in revelry of the most general and boisterous sort, so that few assemblies of the young and the gay were unknown to us. Our appearance and age seemed to excite in most cases a ridicule which I keenly resented, but which my friend considered a lesser evil than solitude. Especially he was afraid to go out of doors alone when the stars were shining, and if forced to this condition, he would often glance furtively at the sky as if hunted by some monstrous thing therein. He did not always glance at the same place in the sky. It always seemed to be a different place at different times. On spring evenings, it would be low in the northeast. In summer, it would be nearly overhead. In autumn, it would be in the northwest. In winter, it would be in the east, but mostly if in the small hours of morning. Midwinter evenings seemed least dreadful to him. Only after two years did I connect this fear with anything in particular. But then I began to see that he must be looking at a special spot in the celestial vault, whose position at different times corresponded to the direction of his glance. A spot roughly marked by the constellation of Corona Borealis. We now had a studio in London, never separating, but never discussing the days when we had sought to plumb the mysteries of the unreal world. We were aged and weak from our drugs, dissipation and nervous overstrain, and the thinning hair and beard of my friend had become snow white. Our freedom from long sleep was surprising. For seldom did we succumb more than an hour or two at a time to the shadow which had now grown so frightful a menace.
Then came one January of fog and rain, when money ran low and drugs were hard to buy. My statues and ivory heads were all sold, and I had no means to purchase new materials or energy to fashion them, even had I possessed them. We suffered terribly, and on a certain night, my friend sank into a deep breathing sleep. From which I could not awaken him. I can recall the scene now: the desolate, pitch-black garret studio under the eaves, with the rain beating down, the ticking of the lone clock, the fancied ticking of our watches as they rested on the dressing-room table, the creaking of some swaying shutter in a remote part of the house. Certain distant city noises muffled by fog and space, and worst of all, the deep, steady, sinister breathing of my friend on the couch—a rhythmical breathing which seemed to measure moments of supernal fear and agony for his spirit as it wandered in spheres forbidden, unimagined, and hideously remote. The tension of my vigil became oppressive, and a wild train of trivial impressions and associations thronged through my almost unhinged mind. I heard a clock strike somewhere, not ours, for that was not a striking clock, and my morbid fancy found in this a new starting point for idle wanderings. Clocks, time. Space, infinity, and then my fancy reverted to the local as I reflected that even now, beyond the roof and the fog and the rain and the atmosphere, Corona Borealis was rising in the northeast. Corona Borealis, which my friend had appeared to dread, and whose scintillant semicircle of stars. Must even now be glowing unseen through the measureless abysses of ether. All at once, my feverishly sensitive ears seemed to detect a new and wholly distinct component in the soft medley of drug-magnified sounds—a low and damnably insistent whine from very far away, droning, clamoring. Mocking, calling from the northeast, but it was not that distant whine which robbed me of my faculties and set upon my soul such a seal of fright as may never in life be removed. Not that which drew the shrieks and excited the convulsions which caused lodgers and police to break down the door. It was not what I heard. But what I saw, for in that dark, locked, shuttered, and curtained room, there appeared from the black northeast corner a shaft of horrible red-gold light, a shaft which bore with it no glow to disperse the darkness, but which streamed only upon the recumbent head of the troubled sleeper, bringing out in hideous duplication. The luminous and strangely youthful memory face, 
as I had known it in dreams of abysmal space and unshackled time, when my friend had pushed behind the barrier to those secret, innermost, and forbidden caverns of nightmare. And as I looked, I beheld the head rise, the black liquid and deep-sunken eyes open in terror, and the thin shadowed lips part as if for a scream too frightful to be uttered. There dwelt in that ghastly inflexible face, as it shone bodiless, luminous, and rejuvenated in the blackness, more of stark, teeming, brain-shattering fear than all the rest of heaven and earth had ever revealed to me. No word was spoken amidst the distant sound that drew nearer and nearer. But as I followed the memory face's mad stare along the cursed shaft of light to its source, the source whence also the whining came, I too saw for an instant what it saw, and fell with ringing ears in that fit of shrieking and epilepsy which brought the lodgers and the police. Never could I tell, try as I might, what it actually was that I saw. Nor could the still face tell, for although it must have seen more than I did, it will never speak again. But always I shall guard against the mocking and insatiate Hypnos, Lord of Sleep, against the night sky, and against the mad ambitions of knowledge and philosophy. Just what happened is unknown, for not only was my own mind unseated by the strange and hideous thing, but others were tainted with a forgetfulness which can mean nothing if not madness. They have said, I know not for what reason, that I never had a friend, but that art, philosophy, and insanity had filled all my tragic life. The lodgers and police on that night soothed me, and the doctor administered something to quiet me. Nor did anyone see what a nightmare event had taken place. My stricken friend moved them to no pity. But what they found on the couch in the studio made them give me a praise which sickened me, and now a fame which I spurn in despair as I sit for hours, bald, grey-bearded, shriveled, palsied, drug-crazed and broken, adoring and praying to the object they found. For they deny that I sold the last of my statuary, and point with ecstasy at the thing which the shining shaft of light left cold, petrified and unvocal. It is all that remains of my friend, the friend who led me on to madness and wreckage. A godlike head of such marble as only old Hellas could yield, young with the youth that is outside time, and with the beauteous bearded face, curved, smiling lips, Olympian brow, and dense locks waving and poppy crowned. They say, that the haunting memory face is modelled from my own, as it was at twenty-five, 
but upon the marble base is carven a single name in the letters of Attica. Hypnos. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. This is Julie Hoverson of 19 Nocturne Boulevard. This is Melvin Cartagena. And we're talking about Hypnos by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh... Somebody pointed out that this is a, a very early story. Um, I think it's one of my favorites, which is kind of strange, because I don't think most people think that. I don't think it's a favorite story. Um, were you guys surprised that I wanted to do this story as a podcast? Not, uh, not especially. Um, no, nope. I think it's best to have anything that says Lovecraft that's in the public domain. But um, I know that in your list, you don't have this one. When I talked to you about it, it wasn't on the list of Lovecraft uh, public domain. Uh, it it it's on my website somewhere as being public domain, like on LibriVox. But it, I don't have a I don't have an early printing of it, so yeah. I don't have a yeah. PDF of it. But I liked that also. I thought it was actually really cool. I like, I was surprised to find out that it was actually early Lovecraft. I thought it was after the myth, after after he he was done with um the Tulu mythos. I thought it came after that. Uh, well, it, it sort of feels early to me. It's got, it's got a lot of, um, of those sort of early, simple kind of story ideas. I, I, I'm not a big fan of all the mythos stuff. I think that, uh, a lot of people get too tangled up in that and, and that, that becomes sort of the fun part for them. But I, I enjoy the stories on, as, you know, what they do with that material. So this this story seems pretty light on that. I, I'm not sure there is a lot of connections between other stories in this one, but I, I quite like it. What did what did you think, Julie? Um, oh, it's definitely one of the early stories, but um, I mean, just going by the date. But yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. This is it, it, it's not one of my favorites. I there's you wouldn't adapt this one. No, there's a number of elements in it that are just very similar to some of his other stories that... Certainly. You know, I mean, it's just always one of those. Really? Okay, so I would say, I would say, you know, other stories that are uh, obviously sort of in this vein would would be, uh, there's one called Beyond the Wall of Sleep, which is a Mm -hmm. similar in, in a one respect anyways, it's... It's it's about, you know, what you can do in your sleep sort of thing or what what happens when you go to sleep. And it's about two guys uh, sort of doing that together. But the way it plays out is almost completely different. And the, the relationship is completely has different. a lot more going on. That one I actually love. Exactly. Yeah. You know and, but it also one? feels different. Do you know which one was written first? Like, do you have the chronology? Uh, I think or Beyond the Wall of Sleep is later. Nope, earlier. Um, is it? I just pulled it up. Oh. That was 1919, and Hypnos was 23. Yeah, yeah, no, no, Beyond the Wall of Sleep is one that I'm actually in the process of adapting for some time. So uh, that that's one that features a uh, guy in an insane asylum. The Watcher and his, Yeah, and his, his uh, I guess, nurse is... Trying to get him to, uh, he's trying to read his mind or something. The well, nurse, or he's a, he's he? more of an intern, I would assume. An intern, yeah, that's what it is. Okay, no, yeah. I wish I'd been able to read that one before I went to the podcast. I'm interested in the difference if if uh, the world of sleep involves scientists 
and then hymnals involves artists. Like that's what I would yeah, I think anchor at the, just an anchor point. Yeah, I think that that's a sort of a good way of the looking at it. The main character artist towards scientist as he gets more interested in the sciences. The main character in Hypnos is a sculptor, and yes, I think the sculpture aspect of the story is it's pretty interesting because it goes all the way through. Um, yeah. Moon, what what's your take on this story? Um, I have a soft spot for this one, um, but I do, I do have a, I do like the early Lovecraft stories. Um, but I can see kind of this one, it is sort of uh, prefigured by Beyond the Wall of Sleep, but it also links to um, Polaris as well. Yeah, yeah, it um, does. Yeah, want much to Polaris. Um, you've got the whole sort of alternative dream realities and um, the whole thing with the connection to a particular star in a mystic way. Yeah, and it also shows up, as I was saying before the podcast, it shows up in Dreams in the Witch House, in that there's a sort of an evil star out there. Um, that that story has a lot more going on, so it's, it's re- relatively minor to the plot. But it's interesting in that we've got, in this story, I think, a it seems like more of a joke than most people seem to think like I don't see anybody saying how funny this story is but I think it's pretty hilarious I can't <laughs> say that I caught on to the funny elements but it, I like the twist ending if if that's I'm not really sure what happens at the end but it sort of has a twist to it I guess yeah so the first well, it has a twist the second time I kind of see it coming well yeah it's uh, <laughs> well I mean it's 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 definitely a twist but the twist is what was there all the way from the beginning as well I think Maybe it's something he's in an afternoon, like something he just did as a joke, like yes, he says, rather than like a serious story. He wasn't yet serious, like he was just kind of toying with the idea. Then he gets more serious with the wall of sleep, something like that. Well, um, I, I don't know. I don't know how close. Uh, the joke part, I think, is that we've got a guy who falls in love with a statue at the beginning of the story. And the um, statue, is, is it him? I'm not really sure. That's one thing I wasn't clear on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, man. It's, it's, a, it's a little unclear at the end, yeah. you know, because the statue looks like him. But um, he he's, you know, admiring its statuesque features right in the beginning of the right. story. He seems to be, like, really fond of the statue. And the way he describes his friend, who was the statue later on, very, um, almost in, in mythological terms, like in Greek mythology terms, like very... I, I idealize, I guess, or yeah, and he also he doesn't he de- his friend doesn't speak. <laughs> no, no, but he seems to. No, well, I guess he doesn't need to speak. Maybe that's why he's such a good friend. Like they don't even need to speak to each other. They just look into each other's eyes, and well, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's, what, that's one of the things that is is recurs. I've been just browsing through trying to find the other stories. Like he, the ones where you know he he suddenly and instantly has a friend. Right. Yeah, that struck me as like he seems like a very introverted guy. He's never had a friend before, but just looking at this guy while he's on the floor, like I know this is my friend for life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a similar there's there's a similar instant friendship and and very tight friendship that suddenly occurs for it's it's one of the one of the recurrent themes that is just odd in some ways, but it it was clearly one of uh, Lovecraft's, you know, real, like, personal fantasies. It was to suddenly have a friend. Yeah. Right. And one that is smarter than him, too. 
if, if, if we're reading the sculpture, a sculptor character as Lovecraft, um, he wants to have, you know, sort of a, a guiding, um, a mentor. Mentor, yeah. So is this the original Fight Club? There's a question <laughs> for you. Did you see my tweet about that? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I reread it recently. I thought, this is, this is Fight Club. <laughs> Yeah, I said we don't talk about hitting us club. That's right. Well, we don't sleep in. Hitting us club, you have to dream. It's funny because I—that's exactly what I tweeted, and it's really exclusive. It looks just him and his friend. There's no napping in Fight Club, right? There's no. I'm just testing my eye. Global, but this is just him and his friend. Well, it's uh, and, it's pretty interesting, and well, from the same era of writing is also the Hound, which is another, you know, two dudes hanging out in the dark house kind of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, and which personally, the Hound reminds me of of all things, the murders in the Rue Morgue. Hmm. If you read their description of their lifestyle, I think the Hound was clearly an homage to Poe in some ways. Well, they're a lot more evil in the Hound, or they. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's the, but 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 the but the specific description of how they chose to live their life is almost a direct riff on 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 the murders in the Rue Morgue. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's, it's oh, not dissimilar from this either. I mean, they're, they're two guys living in a house in Kent. Yeah, and then they they apparently can't find enough uh, drugs in in Kent, so they move to London for some reason. <laughs> Guess that's where all the good drugs are. Uh, I think well, I always trek from Kent to London. Anybody look that up? Well, that's, it's fair, it's, fair, it's, fair. No, it's not that far. It's not far at all. And London yeah, in this period is where you got the Fu Manchu Limehouse connection and where all the opium was yeah, coming yeah, but in. That's but that's the wrong drug, right? So you've got uh, I, in my picture illustration, I've got them uh, doing caffeine, <laughs> coffee to stay awake, <laughs> and I've also got them uh, using. Uh, amphetamines, which were invented in the 1880s, so they would have been around mm. then. Um, I'm not sure what other drugs there are that could keep you awake. Could keep you awake. Uh, yeah, caffeine was not around then, right? Maybe not. Well, at least in well, the that we have in Coke. New World. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm. I had them drinking coffee, <laughs> drinking <laughs> coffee, and and using um, amphetamines. So there, there's a way to keep awake. For sure, mm. but not the way they say. And and I, I I like the way in the story the characters say, "Oh, we're not aging. We're not aging." Or at least the main character says, "We're not aging." And then all of a sudden they age rapidly. <laughs> yeah, it seems like when they go to sleep, I guess they they can wake up and they age whatever time they hadn't aged up until then. Like they age in in blocks of time rather than like a, over a slow, steady uh, increment. I think that's the idea. I mean, the idea behind this story is that they're astrally project, projecting their, themselves. They're traveling to the stars or, or something. To I guess so. Yeah, they go to a place where time doesn't matter, and because of that, you know, that dilation of you know, space time, when they come back, it's a long time. Actually, that's they don't really feel it. It's a good point. They, uh, there's a couple of very strange references in the story. Um, one of them, I didn't understand at all. The other one I guessed correctly um, when I, I got my Lovecraft S.T. Joshi uh, version, they've got a uh, notations as to which, you know, what these mean. So at one point in the story, uh, he says, a man with oriental eyes says that 
or thinks that this. And I'm like, who is he talking about? Confu- well, Confucius? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but so I've been, nothing else has never mentioned, like no name uh, has ever said, like other than, well, no name as at all, actually, no names. Well, the the problem here is uh, Oriental doesn't mean what we think it does. It's it just means Eastern. It doesn't mean right. the Orient. In fact, you made a good point. This could be um, uh, oh man, I forgot his name, but the guy who wrote the Necronomicon, who collected the whole mythology, maybe this is him before he gave him a name. No, it, apparently it's, it's more likely Naralathotep. No, it's okay. it's it's. Uh, there's two. There's one reference to Sigmund Freud, which is the one I guessed correctly. Um, and the other one is to, uh, Einstein. And Einstein's the one he's, he's talking about when he says the man with the eastern eyes. Which is very strange because you don't, you don't look at Einstein and say, oh, he's got eastern eyes. Yeah, but you don't think of eastern at all with Einstein. At least he's I actually, when he's referring to the Orient, he's referring uh, not to Asia, but to um, the Middle East. That's why and when you said that, I, I thought of, um, I can't remember his name right now, but essentially the guy who put the whole mythology together in the Necronomicon, in the volume. Has read. Yes, that's mm-hmm. what I thought of then. Maybe this is before he actually came up and gave him a name, like because it's one of the early stories. Well, no, no there's, um, I seem to recall reading somewhere that um, Abdul Al-Hazred was actually a, a, a persona that Lovecraft had created for himself years before he wrote. It was, you yeah. know, like, it was, it was his, his, his storyteller character that he had in his head to write stories. And so, um, mm. it was long before the character appeared in, uh, in print in any He's way, a, it was, you know, it was sort of his own internal pseudonym. Okay. Well, Abdul Hazard first appears in, um, The Nameless City. Which is a little before this, yeah. I think. And if I remember rightly, actually, the name was one... Um, it goes right back to his childhood. Yeah. It, was a, it was a name um, a relative suggested when he wanted an Arabian-sounding name to play Arabian mm-hmm. Nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, the, the story is, I think, you know, it is about um, sort of Einsteinian... Uh, relativity in a, a, a little bit. This is also in uh, Dreams in the Witch House as well. And this period, that story that was written in, is totally um, is is when Einsteinian theory was being tested and and conjectured and all that stuff. So there's a really cool quote in here that I think lends itself a bit to hypnos. Um, this is uh, from a letter to uh, Samuel Loveman, who. Uh, yeah, that's who the SL at the beginning of the story, the story's dedicated, dedicated to Samuel Loveman, who is um, uh, Lovecraft's friend. And in a letter, um, he this is what he writes when he finds out that Einstein was right. He says, My cynicism and skepticism are increasing, and from an entirely new cause, the Einsteinian theory. All is chance, accident, ephemeral illusion. There are no values in infinity. The least idea that there is a supreme mockery of all. All the cosmos is a jest and fit to be treated only as jest. And one thing is as true as another. So he's he's not very uh, um, happy with it, but he's he's willing to go with it, and that fits quite well into this story. Um, and I think it is kind of a joke because at the beginning of the story, we've got uh, a guy 
you know, everybody's standing around looking at this fallen man in the train station who could be himself, right? And he says wordlessly, he agreed to come home and live with me and be my my teacher. Yeah, no. I don't know how you do that without without <laughs> using words. That's what I mean. Like, there's just no agreement. They just look at each other's eyes and like that's it. We're meant to be together. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. He's carrying around a hand mirror or something. <laughs> that was my impression also, that it is him, that this is him all along, and that bust, I don't know, like, um, him as a young man. It's almost like, um, when you mentioned that, it made me think of uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. Like, he's so fascinated with his own image as, as a young man that, um, that became his friend for life. It, it's, it's very unclear to me whether there, there is a statue at the beginning there or not. But he does describe its features as, as being Olymp- an Olympian brow, you know, sort of like an oversized bust rather than... Yeah, and in the beginning, again, when he describes him, when he first finds him, again, there's something very um, idealized about the way he describes him, almost like a mythological god, like a, one of the gods of the Greek mythology. Well, uh, Mr. Jim Moon, you, you named your website and podcast after Hypnos in a certain way, right? Indeed. <laughs> What was the idea there? <clears throat> um, well, let's go. Hypnos is the you know, he's the god of sleep. He's the son of um, the goddess night and the brother of death. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the, the story's already had an, an appeal for an appeal for me is, um, um, I you know I just really like the the idea of a, of a god of dreams and particularly. <laughs> In other hands, that would be a whimsical notion. In Lovecraft, it's this terrifying cosmic force <laughs> that will suck you away to the far galaxies and leave you as a statue. Yeah, and the Baudelaire quote is, I mean, that's that seems like if he didn't get inspired to write this story because of that, it certainly totally fits. Well, Lo- Lovecraft was very, he had a big phase where he was very into the um, the classical myths and the Greek gods and I see this story is kind of springing out of that that kind of period, and also, you know, Lovecraft was a prodigious dreamer himself. I mean, oh, yeah. he loved you know writing down his dreams. Yes, yeah, so many of his elements of his stories come from his dreams. Um, uh, so the statement of Randolph Carter is just a polished version of one of his dream recollections, and that that was also connected to Loveman, right? Well, that's it. Cause the um, the best friend character in that, Harley Warren, in the dream, it was Samuel Loveman. And him and Lovecraft go to this benighted cemetery and um, uncover these ancient stepways down into the nitrous pits of the nether earth. Mm-hmm. Was, was, I think Loveman was older, right? A little bit older than Lovecraft. So he was friends with Ambrose Bierce. <clears throat> so maybe he fulfilled that kind of role in, in reality, not just uh, well, like so- he was... I think uh, I think Loveman um, was quite well connected with the sort of New York literati as well. Uh, oh. So I think he was kind of a guiding influence on Lovecraft's writing because this was a proper man of letters, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, he, he was older, and mm. uh, you know, being friends with Ambrose Bierce, you'd have to be really. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so I guess um his friend maybe penetrated breached the chamber of Hypnos, the god of sleep, so he came back to claim him because you can't just go there. That's an interesting idea. I, I'm I'm not sure. Like, that... uh, as you remember, like in the passages, he is sort of described. But they travel together, but his friend is always ahead of him. And at mm-hmm. one point, he, re- he goes into a barrier that he can pass, the narrator can't reach through. 
and his friend comes back really like freaked out, really scared over what he saw. And that's when he says, we can't sleep ever again. That makes sense because that fits the idea that um, they can't sleep, right? And they especially yeah. can't sleep when the star, that star is up. And um, towards the end, I guess when they reach that point where they're like, um, their money's almost gone, they have no um, drugs, or they can't find drugs that they need to stay awake. Um, that's when he gets into that passage where he describes like a column of gold and some a uh, red face mm-hmm. hovers over his friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a red light. There's a red light that yeah. comes through. The that's what it made me think. I mean, it's either that or, or like you said, it was just him all along. But um, that's my impression that maybe. I don't know, he, he breached Hypnos' chamber somehow, like maybe he reached the actual, I don't know, wherever Hypnos lives, and that's an unforgivable offense. Yeah, it's interesting. In fact, the there's a, a good connection between the idea of not being able to sleep, uh, or w- w- spending all your time sleeping, and, you know, the night. And you do that in the night. Well, that's because God Hypnos is looking down on you, right? Um, I guess maybe the the less you sleep, the closer you get to that place, and maybe that's why you have to sleep to not have him come and take you away. <laughs> it, what what I do like about the story, Julie, and I I, I don't know uh, if, if you pick up on this, but I certainly picked up on it, is that it's unlike to me. It's unlike a lot of other Lovecraft stories, and it it has this ambiguity. Um, in who the who the the narrator is talking about in you know in the statement of Randolph Carter or pr- pretty much any other Lovecraft story I've ever read all the characters are separate people but in this story the, the friend almost o- operates like a symbolic or allegorical um Tyler Durden uh, yeah <laughs> A very good point. <laughs> An allegorical Tyler Durden. I I didn't even. Yeah, exactly. And you, that doesn't make it a little more interesting to you. It's the the whole woohoo! I have a friend. Plot has always left me cold. I felt it was. A, yeah, well, that's very Lovecraft, right? Well, I felt it was a way for him to avoid actually writing interaction between people. Yeah, yeah, it's much because he didn't like writing interaction between people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you look at all his stuff, there's very little dialogue in any of his writing ever. He will recount dialogue, but he won't actually let you experience. But in this story, there is no dialogue from that guy. And yeah. in fact, the one time he does communicate, he communicates by writing something down. <laughs> he gets a piece of paper and writes down his desire to quote-unquote, control the universe, right? And everything under it, right? I guess and, it's not and, too far-fetched for him. He probably did wish he could control, I don't know, the the rush of immigrants into America and things like that. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, not not Lovecraft, but the, the, the character of the unnamed na- main character, he says, um, I read this note and I burned it. And the reason is... Um, you know, it's it was too great a sin against something or someone. It was too um, great. Now, what what's kind of cool though is that in dreams you do control the universe, right? The universe is theoretically under your control, even if you don't feel like you're in control of it. Um, you have the opportunity in dreams, in lucid dreaming, anyways, to take control of what what's happening in the universe and mold it to the 
way you like. Which and is interesting because most people don't feel like they have any control in their dreams. Right. Yeah, and it most of it feels like to me. Yeah, it doesn't feel like I just kind of. At least it feels to me like I'm just going along with things that are happening. Like I'm not really controlling anything. But when I do remember, you I mean, are you are the one who's. I mean, it feels that way, but ultimately you are the one generating the dream. It's not like an external force, right? Okay. It, well, it, it's not like Inception, right? It's it's like. Just you. No, throughout history, though, we've created various gods who cause dreams so that we can explain right. why they're totally out of our control. That's right. But um, I, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever done it, but I did my fun with lucid dreaming when I was younger. And it's there are, there are techniques that allow you to, um, you know, you, you basically what you do is you ask yourself, uh, am I dreaming right now? If I was dreaming right now, what would it look like? And you certainly know what it's like in regular life when you're not dreaming and you're not taking, you know, psychotropic hypno hypnogogic <laughs> drugs. Um, you you know what it's like, you know, that uh fish don't fly through the sky generally, right? And really? um <laughs> well, you know, there are flying fish, but Piranha, um, flying piranha fish. In a dream, dream, we got dream logic down is in the market. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, there's a, there's a fish store down at the public market that's famous for throwing fish. Yes, but they, the, they are. They, yeah. they toss it from dude to dude. It's it's like a oh, okay. thing. But it was like throwing it at people. It's for the tourists, Julie. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's their shtick, and it's. Famous. Yeah. What I'm saying is, in dream world, it's very clear that you're in a dream. Not it, always, though. It really it's is. not always clear because you're not, you don't ask yourself the question, does this seem like a dream? And what you can do is, like, you set a timer, for example, to go off every uh, 40 minutes. And in that, every time you do that 40-minute timer thing and it comes up, you say to yourself, Look around and you say, does this look like a dream to me? Is it using dream logic? And, of course, during the day, nothing will look like that if you're not having psychotropic drugs or, you know, some weird hanging out with Julie at the farmer's market in, in <laughs> Seattle, right? It, it'll look like normal reality. And that habit can be brought into dreams because just like if you play Tetris before you go to bed and you played for a couple hours, you'll have Tetris dreams. If you inculcate a habit in your your daily life, it'll go into your dreams as well. And when that happens, you can then say, hmm, am I dreaming? And you you say, yes, I am. And then you when you answer that question, you say, aha. So now, instead of having that... Um, that mountain be made out of chocolate. I can have it be made out of uh, diamonds. And you can mold the dream in the way that you like. And, and that's that's certainly what I was reminded of. If 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 we take this um, as not literally controlling the universe, but just controlling the, the universe while you're asleep. I guess it's just a skill. You develop like anything else, I guess, through practice. And practice, I guess, eventually you develop it. I guess you do that, Jesse, right? You document a lot of your dreams. Uh, well, uh, yes, but I don't, I don't lucid dream anymore because I, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's pointless because <laughs> ultimately, you know, that is not the reality that you remember or live in. You can remember it while you're, while you're having it, but it, dreams are designed to go away. They, 
they are not designed to stay. So I just I just document my dreams when I wake up, but I don't try to lucid dream very much anymore. Well, I don't lucid dream anymore because it, it, it it's kind of annoying to spend your day making this habit of asking yourself, are you dreaming? It's kind of silly. <laughs> my, my worst dreams are... My, my worst dreams tend to be wandering around a giant mall parking lot trying to remember where I parked my car, which actually doesn't <laughs> lend itself to wondering if you're dreaming, but rather wondering if you're in the right lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 a tor- sort of typical dream problem, right? Yeah. Um, not a particularly interesting dream problem, nope. but... <laughs> hating as hell. Mm. Well, but people dream. I think well, that'll be an NRM dream. Sorry, that'll Mr. be an Jimmy. NRM dream because you have two modes of dreaming. You mm-hmm. have the uh, REM sleep. That's where you get the vivid, really wild dreams—the ones you tend to remember. But mm-hmm. researchers have found, and for a lot of time, they thought it's only we had the rapid eye movement is when you were dreaming. But researchers have found you actually you do dream out of those periods, and they're the NRM periods. But those dreams tend to be. <laughs> The ones where you're doing day-to-day tasks and it just goes round in a circle and you're just like wandering down the street, just going to work, and it's all just the ones composed of endless everyday routines. Daydream. Super boring dreams. <laughs> well, I think they're 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 probably serving some function, right? It, it's like when you have a big decision to make or not, you know, you you're not sure what to do. You can go to sleep, and when you wake up, it you know, it seems clearer in the morning, often. Well, I think it's somewhere your brain processing, it's sorting memories, but it can also be your brain sort of practicing things as well. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, a common thing a lot of people have when you're learning to drive, you'll have these endless, monotonous dreams of being on driving lessons. Mm-hmm. And that's your brain trying to process the new skills you're picking up. That's right. And then, you know, everyone has that thing, you're learning to drive, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a struggle, it's a struggle, it's a struggle, then one day you get in the car and it kind of, oh, right, I've got it now, and, yeah. you know, things become second nature to you that previously you had to really concentrate to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, going back true. to the controlling dreams, I mean, I know Lovecraft would have known this, but, um, like at the temples of Hypnos, people would go there with questions they wanted answered, and they would go in the temple and, and literally spend the night there and fall asleep. And try and uh, what they called incubate a dream to try and contact the gods and get the answers to the whatever was troubling them. Uh, uh, Hypnos, um, the god in the Greek mythology, he had uh, I think at least three sons, uh, maybe more, um, maybe thousands more. But uh, one of them was um, one of them was named Fantasy, which I think is pretty amazing, uh, or v- pretty close to Fantasy with a PH, right? And and that was the there was three of them. One one could m- take the shape of any person. One could take the shape of any animal, and the third one, fantasy, could take the shape of um, of sort of political organizations or something like that. He could he could take the shape of take shape of any object. And yeah, um, he unreal. he was the most dangerous and most one to be wary of because he could be mm-hmm. anywhere in your dream. The Roman version of hypnos was somnos, which gives us in, insomnia. And uh, somnolent, I guess, is sleepy, sleep-inducing. What, what do we make of the idea of uh, the plungings and soarings? I love that. Like, it's diving into and, and flying out of, right? Yeah, but is I... what your dreams are like? Mine? Yeah. 
I usually don't remember what I dream, and when I do remember, it's usually, like, scary, so I don't want to remember. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the description, like, the way he described it, like, I really got that sense of, like, drifting, like, going through something, like, drifting through ether, like, I, I think he actually uses that word at one point in the yeah, description. Either, yeah, absolutely. The closest thing I can describe it to is, um, any of you guys listen to The Police, the band that Sting used to, uh, front? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. There is a song called Wrapped Around Your Finger, and near the end, when he gets to the last bridge, there's just like a little musical breakdown, like not a break, but um, just something with the instruments alone. And it just evokes that same feeling that you're in someplace beyond time, just someplace far away, someplace outside of time and space. And he did that with the writing, he with the description of the passages, I loved it. The sense of like just drifting, roaming through something. You can never, like when you have, I, almost like in dreams where you almost have the shape of something or see something, but before you can grab what it is, it changes or it just drifts away again. This, um, this chart you've got, Mr. Jim Moon, on your website for, um, for the family tree coming from Ovid, you said? I see the Ovid or Hesiod. Okay, it's pretty cool. It's so Erebus and Nyx, darkness and night, um, give uh, Nyx and Erebus. Oh, I see. They they uh, have children of Hypnos and Thanatos, death uh, and and sleep, which are I guess twin brothers. They are. Yep. Thanatos, yeah. So um, there's some. Mm-hmm. There's uh, I think. Death was the ultimate long sleep. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And they're, sleep, they, sleep. they look yeah. like each other, right? <laughs> and Hypnosynpastia, who is acquired sight, had the Oneroi, who are the three children of, of Hypnos, Morpheus, Phobitor, and Phanatos. Morpheus is he who shapes. That's I guess that's the Sandman from the Neo Gaiman <laughs> character, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, Phobitor... Uh, frightening, um, and Phobos is, of course, fear, and Thanatos, which is, gives us the word fantasy, which is pretty cool. And poppies are, are, it says, I think, when I was reading about these guys, Hypnos lived in a cave, uh, on a river of forgetting, and there was no door to his cave so that when you entered, you would, the creaking of the door hinges wouldn't, wouldn't wake him. And outside of the cave was, uh, many, uh, flowering plants that were all like poppies. And what's the other flower you've got here that wake you, that, that put you to sleep or give you a psychotropic, uh, uh mandragona. Mandragona. Okay. Mandragora, rather. Okay. Mandragona is like a monster in Doctor Who, I think. <laughs> oh, Mandragora was an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I've, I've seen that one, but... Um, it's old school. It's, 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 it's fascinating because we do have, like... We get the sense that they want to sleep at the beginning of the story. They're exploring... They're living to sleep. Then, when this uh, penetration of the ultimate horror um, is made... Um, no, we can't sleep. We've got to stay awake all night. We go to parties, hang out with young gay people who, who, um, who, who don't particularly think we're cool. <laughs> Who's that old dude over there in the corner? I don't know, but he looks sleepy, doesn't he? He's got lots of, he's got lots of, 
Amphetamines, go talk to him. Yeah. Yeah, they're kind of creepy looking, but they got lots of money, so let's go. They got drugs. They're, they're, uh, they're rapidly aging. The morning. Every time you see them at one of these parties, they get older. Right, yep. yeah. But I'm guessing they were hosting the parties. They were just bringing these people in just so they could stay awake. It's like, come on, we got stuff. We got uh, uppers. We got none. I guess they were not uppers then, but just stuff to stay awake, stuff that would keep them partying. Well, I think also it's the idea of of at a party you can forget your your race. You know, you can. Uh, they would only go to what was it like the most the most uh, swinging parties or something. Yeah, <laughs> very happy. Well, he was an artist, and I guess he had some. You know, it's never fully discussed in the book, but um, I guess he did have a reputation of sorts. He he was well known in, in circles enough that I guess he was able to sell consistently his um his sculpt his sculptors. <laughs> um, at the end of the story, we've got a character um, who's he looks he wakes up from one of his dreams. He looks over at the other couch or bed, whatever it is, and across from him is this light shining down on on his uh, his friend's face, and then screaming starts happening. But it doesn't say who the screaming is coming from. It just says the screaming happens, and that's why the police are here. Um, and, and the neighbors called the police. Um, what, what was he screaming about? Um, that's what made me think that maybe it was Hypnos coming to claim his friend for, I don't know, disturbing his peace. But then again, it could have been maybe a moment of clarity where he happens to be looking at his friend in candlelight and sees that his friend is really just a sculptor. I don't know, just a realization that his friend is really just a sculptor. I don't know. Like It's never clear, but it's either one or the other to me. That's my thinking. I, I think that's, that's, that's what's so cool about this story as opposed to almost all the other Lovecraft stories. It's got this ambiguity from beginning to yeah, end. I love that. It's so cool that, too, I guess the editors at the time, they didn't ask him to clear things up. They left it as it is. Because now, I don't know, if like somebody wrote something like that now, they'd insist, the editor probably would insist on like clearing ev- clearing up everything. Well, I, I also have a question. Maybe Jim Moon might know the answer to this, because he's, he's, I have a suspicion he will. Um, we, you know, in uh, the a statement of Randolph Carter, that is presumably being dictated to the police. Uh, yeah, or yes, that's a police interview. Yeah, probably. I mean, there's no, there's no, um, in this case, it seems that he's recalling these events for somebody. It could be a police interview as well. Um, but it all, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that quite that tone. I mean, he's not answering questions, you know, I told you once again or anything like that. But he does make quite a strong point saying that you really don't want to uh, I, I really want to disassociate myself with the idea that I'm going to take over the universe. That had nothing to do with me. I completely <laughs> deny it. I, I mean, who is he? Who is he writing this to? Is this a note to the sky god, Hypnos, or what? Well, this is at this period. I mean, there's still a lot of Poe in Lovecraft's typewriter, and a lot of oh. Poe's stories are kind of like these written confessions. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I love it. Uh, and this strikes me as, as this this kind of thing. It's like you know, to it's his written confession. He's writing presumably from an asylum or a hospital or a, some kind of 
<laughs> where he's being incarcerated yeah. for his own good somewhere, and it's kind of well, this this is this is what happens. Why won't you believe me? And I'm, I'll set this down as my account for posterity. And as, yeah, as you said, I, mean, I think I think it's interesting that he does labour the point of it. It wasn't me; it was the other one, really. I burned the note. I disassociated my <laughs> stuff from him. Some that kind of Rachel, and maybe in writing it and then burning it, somehow he thinks he can unta- take it away from himself. Like make it, he can make himself like he never saw any of what he saw or, or learn what he learned. You know what I mean? Like trying to take back knowledge, I guess, like a, mm-hmm. a dark knowledge. Yeah, well, it's, I, it's just it's, Lovecraft too. So I guess it's he hadn't yet perfected the technique of the narration. You know, like like you pointed out earlier, a lot of the stories involve that someone putting down a statement, um, setting down the record, so to speak. And in here, because it's early Lovecraft, maybe he hasn't quite gotten that, that right yet, that hasn't gotten it perfect. I, I don't see a flaw in this story at all. I think I think it's it's quite beautiful. No, but in this um, sense, you, you mentioned yourself, like, who was he writing this for? Well, for nobody, but um, in the other ones, he usually is writing it for someone. And here, I guess, like you said, he's just writing it for himself, so maybe that's where the joke is. Like, well, yeah... I- I I think it is a joke. I mean, it's a cosmic joke. I think that's what I mean. Maybe that's what it is. Like, haha, you don't have any friends. It's just you. You just need to get out more. <laughs> Stop taking those drugs. Yeah. Go outside. Get out of and meet some Stop people. Stop those parties. Grow up, man. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, now that I think about it, running it in my head, yeah, I think I can sort of see the joke. Like you said, a cosmic joke on himself. He well, it is kind of like... It's just a man who's had a... a um, a schizoid break that his friend yeah. he sees on the floor is actually him who suffered some kind of fainting fit or embolism yeah, that, that's, that right. that's triggered this um, creation of this alternative personality. Here's what it says. We, we met, I recall, in a railway station where he was the center of a crowd of, vulga- of the vulgarly curious. Yeah. Well, why, why would this guy be in the train station? Well, it's because it's him, right? And he's fallen down, and maybe after taking too much drugs. Right? He, gets up. Yeah. he was unconscious, having fallen into a kind of convulsion, which impaired his slight black-clad body uh, in a strange rigidity. I think he was then approaching 40 years of age, for there were deep lines in his face, wan and hollow-cheeked, but oval and actually beautiful. He's starting to like himself now. <laughs> and touches of grey in his thick waving hair and small full beard which had once been of the deepest raven black how does he know what the guy's beard l- used to look like uh, <laughs> his yeah. brow was white as of marble artist of- project <laughs> yes I said to myself with all the ardor of a sculptor that the man was a fond statue out of antique Hellas dug from out of a temple's ruins and brought somehow to life in our stifling age only to fill the chill and pressure of devastating years and when he opened the immense sunken and wildly luminous black eyes I knew he would thenceforth be my only friend yeah it's a very convenient just everything right there for him never possessed a friend before for I saw that such eyes must have looked fully beyond the grandeur and terror of realms beyond normal consciousness and into the reality of realms I'm like that is one Amazing look. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> volumes were exchanged in one look. Yep. And then I, he, he takes him home, sets him up, says, "We're gonna live together. You're gonna be my teacher." And he did. He did mention at one point. I guess he made a number of statues of him or busts of him. Yeah, he's always making ivory little so in ivory. In fact, busts. I, I guess he's he's making the same subject over and over and over in his sculptures. 
Do you think they all had Hypnos written in, in the letters of Attica at the bottom? I don't know. I, it makes me wonder, though, like, because he see, uh, uh, um, they briefly mentioned that he has someone on enough that he never seems to have any trouble selling. He's not a struggling artist. He actually has, like, steady clientele. Until he runs out of materials because he spent it all on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess happens to a lot of us. They eventually reach that point of, like, no going back where they just completely taken over by whatever obsession or whatever fear it is that they're trying to get away from. Well, in this case, I don't know. I mean, there was nothing to run away from, it seems like. Again, it's not very clear, but that's the impression I get. I suppose we haven't even mentioned Freddy Krueger yet. Mythology, you know, the, the modern version of the of dream mythology that we've created in the last, you know, half of a century. I guess I guess that's something to be afraid of. Yeah, they tried to stay awake, right? Yeah. Um what what was what was Freddy Krueger's um but he wasn't he wasn't a god, right? He was just like a ghost or something. He was like a school custodian who molested children and the parents burned him, so I guess he came back to haunt them in their sleep years later when the kids were teenagers. The little boys and girls were teenagers. So he was nice. somehow dominated the realm of dreams. Somehow just was able to dominate the realm of dreams and maybe because they had guilty consciences, I don't know. Yeah, Mr. Jim Moon, are you ever going to do a show on uh, that that early '80s movie called Dreamscape? Um, at some stage, yes, because uh, it's one of my favorites, Dreamscape, and uh, <laughs> mine too. There was a, book a very very fun movie called Dream Warriors that I liked way better on the same sort of theme. Uh, interesting. And it's I mean it's got a revival with Inception, but it's 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 a it's not like a new idea. It's a very cool idea. There's also there was also a TV series. Um, oh gosh, when was it? Um, early '90s, I think. It starred. Uh, I can I can think of a couple of stars. Hold on, let me look it up. Um, that it only lasted about five episodes, but it involved going into people's dreams. It was actually pretty decent, but they didn't give it a chance. There's a um, this though. Anybody um. Anybody read Roger Selassie's A Dream Master? I guess that sort of describes what Julie just described as well. Like it's almost exactly the same premise. I don't. I don't know that one. There is a Carl Barks, um, Donald Duck, uh, or Uncle Scrooge comic that is essentially the same plot as uh, Inception. It's pretty amazing because it came out way before it. It, it even involves like getting the you know the bank codes to. Uh, to get into the bank at, at at Uncle Scrooge's, you know, money bin. Oh, the totem. Yeah, they used like a an Inception style machine to, you know, huh. get inside Scrooge's mind and give him implant dreams in which he gives up his code. Oh wow! Well, I wonder if Christopher Nolan read that when he was a kid. I I don't know. It's a, it's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Oh, Sleepwalkers is the name of this show that says it's still going from 1997. <laughs> no. Sleepwalkers. It lasted. Oh, it's so still going. Wow. No, it lasted one. It, well, it lasted less than one, nine episodes, but it started Naomi Watts and Ray Wise. So it was a pretty, pretty well cast uh-huh. show. I remember it being Naomi good. Hmm. I looked this up. Did anybody get a, a slight geat-em-up-a-son feel from reading it the first time? Hmm. 
I'm a big fan of Guy de Maupassant, but I don't, I didn't see that. Where, what, what part did you uh, associate there? Uh, it's more of a general feeling, like a general anxiety. But that's more because of the first reading where I didn't know where I was going. I didn't really get it the second time, and even less the third time. But then the beginning, well, just a general anxiety about the guy, like a very nervous guy telling a story, a very high-strung person. It's it's actually um, now that you mention it, I I think it's it's it has this is more like a Guido Montesson story in that you can have a bit of ambiguity. Lovecraft is he he leaves the adjectives like indescribable, whereas. Uh, you know, that's everything is. Uh, I can't tell you about what thing no, is it's so it's terrible just... you can never know. But Montpassant is more like, here's what's happening, but was it real? <laughs> well, that's. I guess that's why. Because in some ways, that's what's happening here. I mean, the very end, we still don't know what happened. Was he really thinking? Was did Hemnos really come and get his friend, or was his friend just uh, a younger version of himself, uh, a sculptor of himself as a young man? If this it's happens a lot, there's got to be a lot of hypno statues around the world, and I, I haven't seen that many myself. So would have been cool if somebody did write a sequel to that. Like maybe these statues turn up around the world, and a collector wants them, and you gradually start tracing it back to this guy who this this artist who disappeared once, and then you come from there, you piece the story of hypnos together. It almost reminds me of um that episode in oh man. The series that you looked me up with a while ago, um, the Masters of Horror, the the one where uh, the guy is looking for that copy of that rare film, Cigarette John Carpenter uh, yeah. one, good movie. Uh, in fact, I think that's the best thing John Carpenter's done in the 21st century. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because after yeah. the Mountains of Madness, I don't know what the hell happened to him. Did he go off into the Mountains of Madness? <laughs> <laughs> he started doing Escape from L.A. So I guess oh, that's a sign of insanity. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> he started remaking his own work again. <laughs> Well, if you listen to him talk, the way he talks is, I'm making my money. <laughs> he talks. He's benefiting from the remake, the creator of remixers. I think he's a director who's had the most movies remade of his original work. They remade yeah, but the I Fog, think... they remade Halloween and a sequel. They remade um, Escape from uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, they remade it, and also he also did Ghosts of Mars, which was Assault on Precinct 13 on Mars. And <laughs> I never seen that one. I really stopped paying attention to him after Escape from L.A. I, after that, I was like, man, what happened? Yeah, I can Escape see why. Was yeah, of the movie Escape from Planet Earth. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I'd like to mention is, uh, sure. for a similar, as we were talking about Hypnos, uh, it Started, I started picking out sort of not quite similarities with a story that I just read over on um, for for Halloween on my feed uh, called uh, Oh Lord, it has a title that'll drive you crazy. Um, it's from J.R. Hammontash and who does some really weird stuff and it's kind of Lovecraftian, but not exactly something you could quantify that easily. But the story is two people moving in together, two, uh, you know, two people moving in together and weird stuff ensuing as one of their, oh, Lord, his belief is that there's something behind the wall in the house and that there's a way to reach it. And the story is called, there is a family of gnomes behind my walls and I swear I won't disappoint them any longer. (laughs) He's going to join them, I guess. Well, you no, know, it's not that simple. It's really not that simple because it does come off as, is this the real world? Is this just fantasy kind of story? 
Um, Somebody's putting a, another song there. Yeah. <laughs> and and but it's got sort of that same weird dubiousness to it that that a lot of the debate we've been going on about has. Very much well, another episode of Master Sahara when you mentioned that. Which? Uh, I can't remember the name right now, but it involves a, a math student who, um, I guess he's exploring fractal theory. And yeah, that's the Dreams in the, the Witch House. I'm sorry? That's the Lovecraftian one, the Dreams in the Witch House. Yes, yes, the one with the math student who moves into that really crappy flop house, and I guess the walls intersect at a point that opened to another dimension. Yep. I also Somehow, that the room next to where the woman with the baby is. Yeah, I also adapted that from uh, for audio drama. I gotta do a real version of that sometime. Yeah, when is that coming out? Yeah. Ma- yeah, Julie, get to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wake up and get to work, Julie. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>